Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to this continuing education program entitled Clinical Updates and Strategies for the Long-Term Management of Patients with Multiple Sclerosis. The topic of this podcast, which is podcast number two, is caring for the MS patient during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Dr. Fred Lublin, the Saunders Family Professor of Neurology and Director of the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai in New York. I'm joined today by my very close colleague, Dr. Aaron Miller, who's Professor of Neurology, Vice Chair for Medical Education, and the Medical Director of the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Icon School of Medicine in Mount Sinai in New York. So welcome, Aaron. Thanks, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about something that's on everybody's mind these days. It is indeed. So let's start with what is SARS-CoV-2? Well, SARS-CoV-2 is a, a member of the coronavirus family. Um, SARS stands for um, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, um, and CoV-2 is the second in that SARS category. Uh, many of the listeners probably will remember the scare of SARS-CoV-1 a number of years ago, which was we then used to know just as severe acute respiratory syndrome. So this is a virus in the same family. Um, these are single-stranded RNA viruses, um, and they're called coronaviruses because there's a series of uh, protein spikes on the surface of, their, of the viral capsid that creates the appearance of uh, the corona of the sun. So that's how they get their name. Uh, and these are the, the spike proteins on their surfaces are the way that they attach to epithelial cells um, and create havoc. Um, so there are many, many, many other coronaviruses. Some of them cause the common cold, although there are a lot of other non-coronaviruses, um, particularly rhinoviruses that, that cause the, the cold as well. So coronaviruses are not all um, horrible critters, but uh, SARS-CoV-2 is certainly creating uh, very serious problems. So what's made this, this pandemic, which is sort of self-explanatory in a sense, so dangerous? So we should, we should mention, of course, that SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus. COVID-19 is the name of the disease that is caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So what has made this so dangerous? Uh, I think there are a lot of issues that, that have made the, the pandemic um, so dangerous. Um, uh, one, of course, is the fact that this is a very, very, very highly contagious um, virus um, and that it's transmitted easily from human, from human to human. That's one point. The second point is that um, the virus is apparently, uh, and I think pretty obviously by now, 
um, transmitted not only by people who are clinically ill, but by people who are, who are asymptomatic. Um, and so people either before they get clinically ill or having not gotten clinically ill at all are able to be um, um, expelling the virus in um, secretions coming primarily probably from, from the mouth. Um, but so aerosol transmissions uh, a, a, and very tiny particles in the air, in addition to more obvious um, droplets, can can transmit the virus, um, and so it's spreading. It has spread literally like wildfire. Okay, and so what's the risk of COVID? And this was one of the one of several frequent questions that we received in the MS Center, and just those with MS, just having MS independent of, of whatever treatment they may be on, is there a risk? So when we start to talk about COVID and MS, I, I really need to preface my remarks by the fact that we're really, we're, we're generating a lot of information, but we're still missing a lot of numbers that would really enable us to give complete answers to, the, to these questions. It looks as if multiple sclerosis in and of itself does not increase the risk of becoming infected with SARS-CoV-2. Um, so far in um, what limited data we have, because it's very hard to get denominators. Uh, uh, so when one identifies COVID patients, it's hard to know what, what the, the size of the pool is. But the general impression from a number of countries is that people with MS in general are not being infected with the virus uh, at a greater rate than the general population or an age match population, I, I should say. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking in a moment about the issue of how severe that disease is if you do get MS. Right, but, but I think one of the important points is that MS itself doesn't predispose you to infections. Exactly. Uh, unless, with the caveat, of course, that those who have developed rather severe disabilities, especially uh, pulmonary, which aren't common, but if they were there, um, then they may be more at risk for trying to recover from an infection. Well, exactly. So do, do you want to talk now about the issue of the severity of the disease, um, of the viral disease in people with MS? So that, is, that is important. And there are a number of factors about a person with MS um, that may make them at greater risk. So first of all, um, age, no matter what population we're dealing with, older age, particularly over the age of 70 and uh, over the age of 60 and probably increasing as one gets even older, that's a risk for more severe disease, greater likelihood of hospitalization, greater likelihood of intensive care needs, and greater likelihood of being on a ventilator and dying. Um, the other factors that increase the risk for an MS patient uh, in terms of severity of the infection is is disability status. So if we look as we, if we look through a number of the registries that are that are being collected around the world, and we look at the people who have severe disease or death, 
Um, the numbers of people who are up in the Kurtzky EDSS range of 6.0 and above, meaning they need a, a, at least a, a unilateral aid to walk, um, are succumbing at substantially greater rates than people with little disability. In addition to that, um, we know in the general population that comorbidities, particularly cardiovascular disease and obesity, are um, major risk factors for more severe COVID infection. And people with MS are at greater risk also for these comorbidities or have a greater incidence of these comorbidities, uh, in part because they are probably um, impaired in their mobility, have a decreased ability to exercise, tend uh, for that reason to be overweight or to develop or to develop cardiac disease, and those things all increase the risk of severity of, of the disease. And, and our fellow, uh, uh, you know, and Zhang, looking at our population, came up with the same conclusions yeah. that the major uh, risk factors were age, comorbidities, and, and level of disability. Um, and I think you had obesity in there also, but, but um, yeah, so not the disease itself, and I think that's the important point, that it's not the MS itself. Now, in terms of what we do to the patients and therapies, that's worth discussing as well, and that is the, the risks of the various disease-modifying therapies. Yeah, so of course this is a major concern for for people on MS. You know, many of whom um, believe that they are they are on medications which um, impair their immune functioning, and in, indeed that's that's true for a, a number of the drugs we use, but not not for all of them. Um, and here here is where we really are still in need of more data. But uh, there are several large registries around the world that are trying to collect. This, this information. There is a registry in the United States called COVMS. Um, and if any of our listeners uh, have uh, MS patients who have COVID infections, it's very easy uh, to log on to the web website uh, for COVMS. Um, I think it's covms.org and you can enter your data. But when I checked last night, there there's something uh, north of 800 cases that have been registered in the U.S. database. The MS International Federation <coughs> has a database which is collecting data from around the world, and that's up to even, even larger numbers, and, and it, it, uh, it includes the um, data from the COVMS uh, registry. So we're starting to learn a lot, but I, I, would, say, I would say we're still in a situation where we um, need more data. Um, so let's talk about some of the drugs. The, the, the really good news about this is that for a lot of the drugs, it, they do not appear to increase the dangers of more severe um, COVID-19 disease. Um, so let's start with the um, plat so-called platform drugs, the older injectable drugs, including several interferons and glutyrimer acetate. Um, so the interferons uh, do not increase the risk, and uh, many of our listeners might realize that the term interferon comes from the fact that um, when these uh, proteins were originally discovered, 
it was because they were named because they interfered with viral replication. So there's some preliminary suggestive evidence that might indicate that the interferons might even have some beneficial effect in reducing the severity of the infection, but that's really still only a suggestion. Certainly, however, they do not appear to be increasing the um, severity, and the same, the same can be true, <coughs> excuse me, for glutiramorosipin. When we get to the uh, oral agents, um, so we have the sphingosine-1 phosphate receptors, which include um, fingolimod and the more recently approved saponimod and ozanimod, um, and uh, the other oral agents, teraflunamide and um, dimethylfumarate, um, or uh, more recently, deroximelfumarate. Um, so none of these oral agents similarly appear to increase the risks of more severe disease. I think we were particularly worried about this early on with the S1P receptor modulators, in part because they lower lymphocyte counts. Um, but interestingly, in the past, um, those low lymphocyte counts were not generally associated with much increase in infections in general, except uh, perhaps with, with an increase in, um, in shingles and they, uh, an increase, albeit extremely rare, of uh, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy caused by the JC virus. Um, nonetheless, so we had worries about fingolimod, but the data so far do not bear out that, that concern. The, the, these people seem to be doing uh, just as well as anybody else. Um, again, the problem is we haven't yet seen publication of these large databases or these increasingly large databases. So uh, we haven't really had a chance to peruse these data in, in great detail. But uh, I know from conversations with a working group um, making re recommendations for the MS International Federation that the data suggests that all of these oral agents appear to be rather safe. When we move on to um, the infusible therapies, um, natalizumab, ocrelizumab, um, and off-label in most countries, rituximab, um, the uh, the story is a bit different, and I'll speak separately about alentuzumab, the other infusible therapy. Um, first of all, with natalizumab, um, although in theory there's not there's not really reason to believe that uh, that there would be much um, much greater danger. Um, there. Uh, there's simply not enough data yet for us to be absolutely convinced that these are equally safe. There's some theoretical concern about um, natalizumab because uh, the way natalizumab works, of course, is to keep lymphocytes out of the central nervous system. And it's thought to be that process which um, reduces the surveillance, potential surveillance of JC virus in the brain, which is possibly why PML becomes more common. So um, we know that the um, SARS-CoV-2 virus 
has some um, some neurotropism. There is evidence that it does get into the into the central nervous system, at least in some patients. And so there's the theoretical concern that by blocking the entrance of lymphocytes, you might um, reduce that surveillance and potentially uh, lead to greater neurological consequences. But that's purely theoretical at the moment. When we get to the B cell therapies, there is uh, emerging data that suggests that the drugs that deplete B cells may be associated with more severe COVID infection. Again, this is um, a, small, uh, a small percentage of people that get COVID. Many, many, many patients who are on ocrelizumab or rituximab have done just fine with the virus. But if you look at the total constellation uh, of people and factor out even the, the other covariables such as age, disability, and comorbidities, um, you still, we're still seeing the suggestion that the anti-B cell therapies might be associated with more severe disease. Alimtuzumab um, and Maven um, and cladribine are, are, of course, we have even less data about these because they're uh, relatively few patients treated with these drugs. We would have some concern with alimtuzumab. Uh, because of the profound depletion of, uh, of lymphocytes of both B and T cell varieties, and to a lesser extent with um, cladribine. Um, the, the problem, of course, is that you know, in most patients who might get um, COVID-19, they already have had their treatments with these drugs, which are given you know, basically only uh, at yearly intervals. And so you can't, you can't really take them back or, or hold the drug. These probably aren't the best drugs to be starting during the pandemic until we have some better information. Okay, so let's, let's put this into practical terms for, for our listeners and take some specific situations. So one would be the considerations of starting a disease-modifying therapy now, because one of the things that, that you and, and through the MS Society and others have stressed was irrespective of, of COVID, people with multiple sclerosis need to be cared for. And they exactly. need to be started on agents and have their therapies adjusted and such like that. So let's talk about starting a patient on a disease-modifying therapy. They met the criteria where you want to start them. And, and think about, about some of the things you have to think about in terms of the agent and the need for monitoring, the need for leaving the house for either screening labs or for an infusion. And so, so walk through what your thinking would be on starting someone now on, a, on an agent during the COVID epidemic. Right, so of course you, uh, you know that I strongly believe that we have to, we have to tailor the therapy even absent uh, a COVID pandemic to an individual's particular situation. Um, and we have to use all the clues that we have with, with regard to, to prognosis, as well as the person's social situation and their own personal uh, tolerance for risk. Um, and the situation is becomes heightened and even more dramatic during the pandemic. So for example, if we had a patient who had um, what looked like very mild early MS, who, uh, 
who has very good prognostic features, such as maybe they began with sensory symptoms, they have minimal disease on their brain MRI, uh, and that, that might be a patient during the pandemic that one might steer towards using one of the older injectable agents, which are we know are extremely safe and probably are going to be okay for that patient, even with their modest efficacy, at least initially, and they could potentially start that and transition later on to a more efficacious agent or an agent that they might uh, be happier with than an injectable drug. On the other hand, if those patients uh, don't want to start an injectable drug, despite their safety advantages, then I probably, at this particular point in time, um, during the height of the pandemic, uh, I would steer them away from an infusible therapy because I don't want that person to be having to run around the community, um, having to go out for infusions, um, particularly natalizumab, which would be a um, uh, every four weeks infusion, but even for um, ocrelizumab, which is going to require two infusions two weeks apart in the beginning, um, as well as a lot of preliminary blood work that they're going to need to go for. Um, when we look at the oral agents, I might, in the height of the pandemic, personally um, be a little bit more reluctant to use fingolimod than I would, would be to use the other oral agents, um, because starting a patient on fingolimod is going to require their showing up for a lot of preliminary blood work, and then they're going to have to go off somewhere for first dose observation. That, of course, that particular issue might be avoided with one of the newer S1P receptor modulators. Um, and then we're going to perhaps get into the issue about vaccinations in a few moments, but that's, that's yet another consideration. So I think um, sort of the take-home message here is you, you, you need to think about the patient, but you also need to think about what specifically is going on in your community at the time you're making this, this prescription. Okay, so the next, what do you do with your patient who's on disease-modifying therapy who comes down with COVID-19? So the bottom line is, um, in general, I say stay on your, stay on your medication. Um, you know, uh, of course, COVID-2 is a potentially serious disease, but MS is also a potentially very serious disease. Um, it's likely, um, I don't think we have data yet, but it's likely that having a, a COVID-19 disease um, or the infection with the virus that causes it could potentially trigger more MS disease activity because we know that viral infections is one of the, 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 best, uh, the best recognized potential triggers for MS relapses. So number one, people need to stay on their medicines. Uh, I don't think there's enough evidence um, currently uh, about a potentially harmful effect of any of these medicines to say that one should come off it if you get the infection. Generally, as I previously said, there's a suggestion that there may be greater risk for severity with the B cell depleters. But in the case of somebody who's gotten um, COVID infection, the chances are they've already had their, their 
treatment with uh, ocolizumab or rituximab, um, and we can't really take it away. Um, in some circumstances in the middle of the pandemic, one might consider, again, for logistical reasons, rather than for the effects of the medication per se, to delay an infusion in some, in some patients if you're at the height of a pandemic in a particular community. But how about the, the potential benefit of immunomodulation on cytokine storm? Yeah, so, you know, we believe now that the, the, the main risk uh, for serious morbidity and mortality with COVID is, is uh, acute respiratory dis distress syndrome. <laughs> and um, that's thought to co be caused by a massive inflammatory response in the lungs, um, including um, a variety of lymphocytes as well as neutrophils. And these, these are triggered by, um, or in turn, cause the outpouring of cytokines, which attract more inflammatory cells to the neighborhood. Um, so um, it's interesting that, um, that fingolimod, uh, in particular, was actually even, I think, in China, re receiving a small trial um, in COVID-19 patients because uh, through, presumably through its effects on sequestering lymphocytes in the peripheral lymph nodes, it may reduce the possibility of this cytokine storm and increase the respiratory situation in the lungs. Um, I don't think we know terribly much in, in actual fact about whether it does that. Um, and the other, the other medications, uh, um, I don't think we clearly have data to support that, that implication. Yes, yeah, so hopefully as we get larger numbers into these databases, we'll be able to look at the, the percentage of individuals that developed uh, uh, some immune-mediated uh, uh, damage to multiple organs. How about treating an exacerbation during this time? Yeah, so, um, so one thing is, you know, we would expect that there would be an increased number of relapses um, associated with SARS-CoV-2 infection. I don't, I personally haven't seen any data about that. It's uh, going to be tough to collect that kind of data, but um, and it hasn't really been my gut approach. I don't know what your experience has been, Fred, but I, I haven't seen a lot of patients having relapses during the epidemic or during the pandemic, even though we, you know, we've been, both been in New York at the, the height of the epicenter of the virus back in, um, in, in mainly in April into early May, maybe. Um, but uh, when it comes to treating relapses, which of course really means giving high-dose steroids, uh, people have generally suggested maybe holding off steroids if, if you have a, a more minor attack, which is something I tend to do anyway. Um, but I, I think we are still comfortable using steroids in high-dose if a patient has a very significant MS attack. Remember that the high-dose steroid administration has now come to be recognized as an important part of the therapeutic armamentarium in trying to fight off severe COVID pulmonary uh, problems and seems to have made a difference in the, in the outcomes of those patients. So I'm not, I'm not really very concerned about 
doing that. There is the, the theoretical risk that one could promote the viral uh, infection um, early on if you give it, which is probably why we're uh, a little bit more reluctant to treat a mild attack with steroids. So, so my experience is similar to yours. I have not seen anecdotally from my practice a spike in exacerbations despite talking to quite a number of patients who, who have had the infection and gotten over it. Um, there, there are some data from the rheumatologic uh, study suggesting that those on chronic steroids uh, may do worse. Um, but then that's chronic use, not the kind we would use for acute exacerbation. Yeah, and we would certainly hope that uh, we don't have any MS patients on chronic steroids for the purpose of treating their MS. Right. Okay. How about development of immunity for those who either have the infection or for, develop, for uh, when we have a vaccine? Yeah, so of course we're all hoping and praying that we, we get a vaccine um, and sooner rather than later. Um, there are a lot of issues uh, about that. And the, the level of immunity and the duration of the immunity that might be conferred by a vaccine is up for grabs. Uh, you know, I was a little distressed yesterday to see the, the first report of a documented um, repeat COVID-19 disease in a patient several months after recovery from, I guess it was a him, I'm not sure, his first uh, COVID-19 bout. Um, and so, you know, we know that people who get COVID-19 infection get antibodies. Um, the issue is how protective are those antibodies and for how long. Um, and that's being studied. Uh, uh, the FDA was uh, perhaps pressured into approving the use of, uh, of um, convalescent plasma for COVID infections just the other day. Uh, but in fact, there are clinical trials going on to see whether this uh, decreases the severity of the infection. Um, but nonetheless, we expect there, there will be a vaccine and uh, hopefully it will generate a, a, an at least um, temporarily useful uh, immune response to protect us. That uh, does become an issue with some of the medications. So in particular, I think our concerns again surround um, primarily the B-cell depleters uh, and fingolimod. So these are two classes of drugs. Uh, and when I say fingolimod, it's probably true for the other S1P receptor modulators as well. But these drugs have been associated with lesser um, efficacy or lower titers of responses to other immunizations such as influenza immunizations. So that's a bit of a concern, um, uh, again, and could influence potentially one's choice of medication. I think it's something we're probably gonna have to monitor more closely than we would, for example, influenza vaccine or some of the others, where with many of our agents, they get a partial response that's still felt to be protective. Uh, but in this case, we may have to think about multiple immunizations or other potential strategies. Well, this was great. I thank you very much, Aaron, uh, for participating in this conversation. And wow. I thank our listeners uh, for joining us for these clinical updates and strategies for long-term management of patients with multiple sclerosis, a topic 
with Aaron Miller was caring for the patient with COVID-19. And I should mention that this activity is supported by independent educational grants from Biogen and from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company as provided by the academic CMA. So Aaron, thank you very much. Thanks, Brandon. It was a pleasure to share my views with the audience. Take care, all.